What's up? Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we discuss how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, it's hot. It's really hot. This May was the hottest May ever. This June, the Arctic hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm sweating in my room right now. And so we are going to talk about emissions today, the mysterious and hidden kind of emissions, kind of like voodoo accounting carbon emissions that are called scope three emissions. And scope three emissions are some of the most important emissions out there. They sometimes account for 80% of a company's total carbon emissions. And then CU Liu joins us to discuss some of the more traditionally silent companies that decided to join the advertising boycott intended to pressure Facebook into taking a stronger stand against hate speech on their platform. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. A lot of countries celebrate their independence in July, and historically, that meant a lot of July was spent at the gas pump. People would get into their cars and go drive to see their families, and the air pollution would go up. But because of COVID, traffic has been down, and the air has been a lot cleaner. And let's say you, who owns a car, wants to keep the air clean after the pandemic hopefully subsides. So you look at your car that was made in the early aughts and are worried about its efficiency. How much gas do you use every time you turn on the car? How many hydrocarbons are you emitting into the atmosphere? What you are worried about in this hypothetical situation is your direct scope one emissions. These emissions are a big deal for automakers and investors in automaker companies because a lot of regulations are coming down the pike that demand automakers have a certain percentage of their fleet based in hybrid or electric vehicles. And let's say you are down with those regulations and decide to ditch your gas-powered auto for an electric type. And you go get that car and you bring it home and you plug it into your energy grid. You plug it into the wall in your garage. And again, you stare off into the distance and wonder, where is that electricity coming from? What sort of utility am I hooked up to? Is it the sort of utility that gets its energy source from renewable energy, or is it from coal energy, or is it from natural gas? In this instance, what you are worried over is your indirect emissions, or your scope 2 emissions. Scope 2 emissions are a big deal for companies and investors in, say, utilities that provide the energy your car uses to charge itself. For some companies, this is where their emissions stop. Investors need only worry about how these companies are managing their scope 1 and 2 emissions, what I like to call the easily seen emissions. But for most other companies, there are these mercurial other forms of emissions called scope 3 emissions, the three mark of the carbon devil, and they are tough to track. Investors that want to make sure emissions are kept under the agreed upon mark for human existence and economic growth also might have to worry about how a company sources its raw materials, for example. Like where did the rubber come from? Like where did the auto company source the rubber that is now on the tires of the electric vehicle they just sold? If scope 1 and 2 emissions are seemingly in the company's direct control, the scope 3 emissions are in the control of all the various parties that make said company run. I'm talking suppliers, waste management facilities, employee commutes, all this and more is included in a company's scope 3 emissions. 
And so I thought today, since we all wish we were doing holiday stuff, and since the Arctic hit 100 degrees Fahrenheit in June, and since BP said it would again be reinventing itself away from hydrocarbons because of the climate crisis, that we would explore the world of Scope 3. And to illustrate this in a way that isn't mind-lumminy wonky, I'm going to focus on raw materials, the most important and most tasty version of Scope 3 emissions. And I've been enjoying my story about you having a car and you going to see your family and so let's start there again let's say you're driving down the road and you have next to you a nice beverage of some sort and what if that beverage is a pepsi you look at the pepsi as it sweats its sweetness and you can kind of know it's scope one and two emissions pretty easily because pepsico is a big organization and it wonderfully measures its scope one and two emissions easily at its facilities and even breaks it down by region and business segment for example the division that has the largest emissions for PepsiCo is the Frito-Lay division in North America uh, as of 2019. So let's say alongside that Pepsi-Cola you had, you also had a bag of chips. Those chips are responsible for a large part of PepsiCo's emissions. And the Pepsi you're using to wash those chips down, that division accounts for a majority of PepsiCo's scope 2 emissions. Your stomach is literally filled with the most polluted things at the company, consumer. I know that's difficult to handle, but it's something we have to discuss. But that isn't the whole story of those tasty treats. Like I said in the beginning, what about the suppliers of the sucrose used in those drinks or the salt in those chips? What about Pepsi's scope three emissions? Well, to help me through this really quick, I'm joined by Leslie Swingado, who covers PepsiCo for us to help us understand what Pepsi's scope three emissions are like? So uh, scope three emissions are actually the biggest part of the carbon emission generated by Pepsi. They represent uh, 90% of its total carbon footprint. And this is actually something completely normal for food and, and beverage companies. So those scope three emissions, they are indirect because they are not created by the company's own operation or own activities, but by all the upstream activities that happen before entering Pepsi's doors. Um, and if you look at the details of uh, that scope three emissions, the largest portion comes from the agricultural part, all the emissions generated by the production of the raw materials that you need to, to create um, you know, a bottle of cola, but also all the food products that PepsiCo uh, is making, such as sugar, fruits, and cereals. The other scope three contributors are the packaging and uh, also the logistics to get all these ingredients to PepsiCo facilities. So how hard is this actually to measure? So, so what is important to, to understand uh, is that for a food and beverage company like Pepsi, they actually rely on hundreds of thousands of farmers and, and growers. So as you can imagine, it's not that easy for them to get carbon data from each of those uh, farmers and, and growers, especially because sometimes they don't have a direct business relationship with them. And even if they will, um, some farmers just don't have the capability to, to measure uh, the carbon data. They don't have it at hand to, to transfer it and communicate it to, to their um, business partners. So what Pepsi does to disclose its COP3 emission, it uses external studies that provide life cycle carbon emissions estimates for each type of products. 
For example, um, they would give the average and estimated emission generated to produce a bottle of soda with the, the detail of the breakdown of the emissions for each stage of production, including the agricultural supply chain that I, that I mentioned earlier. So then a company like Pepsi will match this life cycle analysis information with its product breakdown and uh, with its sales and procurement data. And there's actually 15 categories that go into all the scope three emissions. And I'm not going to go through all those right now because it would be extremely boring and it would get into those wonky categories that we talked about that I wouldn't do early on in the show. But who I have with me now is Oliver Marchand and he works on MSCI ESG research with me and he actually helped create this massive scope three methodology document and database that we use to assess what companies are at risk due to their emissions and what companies aren't. And basically, Leslie just got done telling us about a very specific form of scope three emissions, broadening it out a little bit, but we focused on one micro company, PepsiCo. So Oliver, what I would like you to do now is kind of broaden the discussion more and kind of discuss what we're doing to try to assess the scope three emissions in the economy as a whole, how difficult it is, how enjoyable it is, kind of take me through the more eagle-eyed view of scope three emissions. So one of the problems with the scope three footprint is that you don't really um, know how much double counting is in there. There's like double, triple and quadruple counting. A good example would be an oil company sells oil and a car company sells, sells a car. And then that car with that same oil produces emissions. Those are scope three emissions of the car company and the oil company. So the big problem is you can't really uh, scope one, a ton of scope three emissions is not really a ton of emissions. It's sort of a ton of double counted emissions, but formerly we didn't really know how much double counting there was. Now we've determined it. It's around a factor of four to five so you have to divide a carbon, um, a scope three carbon footprint about by a factor of five, and you end up with a proxy for actual emissions. So that's, that's very interesting to look at. And then you can build different categories. For example, we can, we can actually um, compute a scope three footprint upstream and downstream, meaning the footprint that comes from the stuff that a company buys and the footprint from the stuff that a company sells. And it's interesting because maybe a company would have more leverage on the one side or the other side, or maybe a certain industry or a company can easily find out, you know, where the um, where the biggest uh, impact is. And see right there to me, that's why all this confusion is so important to sort out for our species to survive into another millennium and for our economy to not be sucked under a changing climate we would need to understand this complex web of emissions. And it's easy to point toward the big polluters like oil and gas companies and say, if we were just to fix them, we will be safe. But it's all much more complicated than that. We need to slow our usage of fossil fuels, yes. But what scope three emissions show us and what it can show the investment community, what it can show the economy, is that we need a collective effort to slow the emissions in a number of sectors. What's interesting is that in a classical uh, climate risk analysis, I think utilities obviously seem extremely uh, risky because they have, you know, a plethora of emissions. Sometimes in risk analysis, when you look at a carbon footprint, an oil company might 
not look very risky at all because the emissions related to oil production aren't really that high. It's in the use phase of their product that the emissions occur. So that's an industry that if you base it on a scope three footprint has a much higher footprint. And then there are a lot of industries in the uh, what we call the uh, commercial um, real estate and services sector where they don't really have any direct emissions at all, but they differ very much in the, uh, in the downstream emissions. Those are all of the insurances, banks, uh, um, service companies, uh, consulting companies, uh, legal firms, uh, all these types. Of, and that's actually 50% of the economy. And it's just very important if you want to have a holistic climate impact and risk view to also look at their value change, uh, it's change upstream and downstream um, to really understand their relationship to climate change. And that, that it really is a 50% of the economy where when looking at direct emissions, it looks like there's no relationship between these companies and climate change. But, you know, when you know climate change as a topic, you know, that's not possible. Um, climate change is so um, ubiquitous that every industry is impacted. And this value chain scope three analysis is what sheds light on this relationship. And now with some spice, I have with me CU Liu, who covers Verizon for us. And why do I care about Verizon today? Well, Verizon is one of the companies that joined the Stop for Hate campaign. The Stop for Hate campaign is asking advertisers to halt advertising on Facebook until the social media company can better handle the hate speech on its platform and other harmful content on its platform. And it's actually gained some traction. Around 400 companies have signed onto the boycott. Many of them are companies used to taking a stand. They're like Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, Cliff Bar, Levi's. Those companies have already come out for causes in one way or another. But then you have these other companies like Verizon and Ford and other large companies that usually stay out of the fray when it comes to social causes. So CU, I'm curious, is this a big deal for Verizon? Are they actually and other traditionally silent companies starting to take a stand for what the company believes is right? Or is this just kind of trying to get into the fray because they don't want to be the last man on the ship. I guess Verizon being one of the um, major consumer brands to to participate in this this so-called corporate boycott, corporate advertising boycott of Facebook. Um, it's it's um, in tr by, by financial terms, it's not a significant amount um, that Ver Verizon spends on digital advertising on Facebook. But um, uh, along with the other, um, I guess, consumer brands, this could be, um, I mean, it's financially symbolic, but it could be a, a very emergent trend of, uh, of corporate taking a stand on how this large um, tech platforms are, are disseminating the information, how they are treating the content, uh, moderating or, um, or not moderating the content. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if ad revenue, ad spending is just going to go down in general. Companies are going to say, you know, we'll take the fortune, you keep the fame. 
Uh, we'll keep taking consumer data to use for us to kind of understand what consumers are doing, but we don't have to actually put our image out all the time. I wonder if in the future it's just going to be less ads in general. Still, I think it is interesting that a lot of traditional companies are beginning to see a change in consumer sentiment, a change in society, and not really wanting to be seen as going against that change. It feels like a moment where the ideas of stakeholder capitalism, where companies are going to pay more attention to what the communities are saying, might in a way emerge. I don't think it's going to be entirely, but it still could happen. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Leslie and Oliver and see you for discussing this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps out. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe this weekend. Keep the causes strong forever you're fighting for. And I'll talk to you next week. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.